0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7 in our Bibles. And our text this morning is going to be back in uh, chapter 5, but I want us to start in chapter 7. And I think you know these are definitely uh, unprecedented circumstances. I know the vast majority of you are going to be watching from online this morning. Uh, If you're a regular part of our church family, and especially if you are watching on the Lord's Day, if you haven't already, I would actually encourage you to to pause this recording and go back and access our service guide and spend some time in focused prayer and scripture reading and and even profit from uh, the music that's suggested there, and really let the whole package of of the ministry of the word minister to you this day. Uh, For those that are regular with us, we are returning to our Lord's most well-known sermon. And this Sermon on the Mount, I think as you know, starts back in chapter 5. It continues all the way uh, through chapter 5, 6, and right to the end of chapter 7. And we're still in the early stages of our study, but I've had us turn to chapter 7 this morning to remind us of a purpose that uh, the Lord had in mind for this message. And I want to ask you just to draw your attention to verses, uh, verse 13 to start with. We'll read 13 and 14, then we'll skip down and catch a couple others. But notice Matthew 7 and verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few there be that find it and you can see the lord's talking about being on a path that is either headed to destruction or on a path that is headed unto life and then skip down to verse 21 and we'll read down through verse 23 notice he says not everyone that saith unto me lord lord shall enter into the kingdom of heaven but he that doeth the will of my father which is in heaven Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And it's in light of these various expressions, again, leading to destruction or leading to life, or here in verse 21, entering the kingdom of heaven, or the end of verse number 23, really being banished from the Lord's presence. It's in light of those kinds of expressions that I've stated uh, the the purpose of this message as evangelism. As Jesus preaching to see men recognize their lost condition and of the danger of their being separated from God forever. And the fact that some in this audience that heard the Lord preach this message might say, Lord, Lord. uh, That's an indication that That some of them at least believed that they had an attachment to God. They thought that they were okay with God on account of the fact of their religious heritage and their upbringing. On account of the fact that they even kind of details it here that they have done some acts of of service in the name of God. But Jesus is warning these people that thought that they were okay with God that they were still in danger. And all the way back to chapter 4 when we were there and Matthew gave us just a, a very brief introduction to the preaching ministry of Jesus. He wrote that the theme of Jesus preaching was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And with that statement of the theme and combined with the clear evangelistic thrust of the Lord here at the conclusion of the message, we have explored the first four Beatitudes that begin this sermon as pointing to expressions of a repentant heart and if you'll go back with me now to uh, chapter five you can see uh, that in verse number three the first of the beatitudes repentance involves men confessing that on their own their spiritual condition is one of utter destitution to be as verse three says to be poor in spirit is to confess that in myself I have no good to earn me any standing with God. In verse 4, repentance involves mourning. Blessed are they that mourn, and mourning is grieving about my many sins and and offenses against the law of God and the person of God. In verse 5, repentance involves the meekness that is spoken of there, the, the tender, humble response to the preaching of the word that That exposes and confronts my condition. Repentance admits that I am rightfully under a death sentence because of of my sin. And then going into verse 6, repentance involves an earnest pursuit of being right with God. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst. There's that earnest pursuit. It's a priority. Uh, And and in this case, what the appetite is for is for righteousness. Righteousness. Now, as we noted last week, those of us that have uh, the complete New Testament have a more thorough knowledge that what we need to be right with God in the first place is for the very righteousness of Jesus Christ to be credited to our account with God. Jesus, remember, met all of his obligations to God and man, and that's what righteousness is. But Jesus, the righteous one, died in the place of unrighteous men like us, and and he took on him our penalty, and, and he made the way for God to accept his righteousness in our place. And when a man turns to the Lord in repentance, he doesn't merely desire to be positionally right with God, But he desires for the Spirit of God to transform his conduct to be more and more like Christ himself, to be more and more practically righteous, practically right with God. And these are all qualities of the repentance that turns to the Lord. And these qualities reflect a gracious work of God in the life. These aren't signs of weakness. These qualities are are a sign of the first word of each of these verses, blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are they that mourn blessed are the meek blessed are they which hunger and thirst we've we've talked about that blessedness as as indicating divine favor this is a a a sign of God's divine favor that by his grace um, these qualities of repentance are being worked out in the life and seen in the life now as we move into verse 7 in our text this morning in this fifth beatitude I do want to alert you to the fact that every resource that I consulted uh, that really did anything to follow the flow of, re- of, of interrelationships of the teaching, um, and, and they made note of it, they, they made note of a change in emphasis here. One man said, there's a change in the type and kind of description. In a sense, we have so far been looking at the Christian in terms of his need and consciousness of his need. And I think we've underscored that. But then he goes on to say, but here's a kind of turning point. Now we are concerned more with his disposition, which results from everything that has gone before. Another man likened the the change that is here between the fourth and fifth beatitude as, as some of the change that you see in the epistles of Paul. For instance, in the book of Romans, there are 11 chapters giving detailed attention to the revelation of the righteousness of God in the gospel. But then chapter 12, as you know, begins with, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, and it goes on to address very practical matters. You see, that same kind of Uh, Emphasis in in an epistle like Ephesians Ephesians 1 through 3 points to what God the Father is doing by Christ through the church For his own glory And then chapter 4 begins by challenging us to walk worthy of that calling and goes on to address our conduct And and this commentator said as after he commented on that kind of emphasis and the parallel He said that the first beatitudes show how a man must stand in his relation as a center to God, spiritually bankrupt, sorry for sin, meekly humble. The remaining Beatitudes will reveal the transformed character of the one who has now been touched by Christ's spirit and is progressively made in Christ's image. Another said the first four Beatitudes express in one way or another our dependence on God, the next three that outworking of that dependence. And, and just one more, the title of another man's study of the fifth beatitude, I think captures it as much as any, and it just, it just was simply titled, The First Evidence of a New Life. The First Evidence of a New Life. Now, now, I can't really say with dogmatism that this next beatitude is more important than any that follow it, but I would say that it is very thought-provoking that the first evidence of the new life that Jesus draws attention to, at least in this sermon, in verse number 7, is what? Look at it again in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. And I wonder if we really take to heart how significant it is in the eyes of God that we act mercifully to others. It is at least the first evidence, again, that Jesus draws attention to in this sermon of this new, this converted, this, this changed life. And in order to understand what is involved in, in acting mercifully, I think we should begin by noting that mercy is, is an attribute the scripture ascribes to God. That is, that is God himself is a merciful person. And, and when Bible students try to group the attributes of God under major headings, mercy is pointed to as a dimension of God's love. Some of you that were in our Bible doctrines class this past summer, and, and we studied theology proper or, or theology about the person of God in particular, you know that we considered the moral attributes of God and when we talked about the love of God, we saw four dimensions of God's love. Uh, benevolence is one dimension of God's love. And, and benevolence is typically understood as the concern of God for the welfare of others and, and His acting in their interests. John 3:16, "For God so loved the world that He gave." his only begotten son, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is benevolence acting in the interest of, of the welfare of others. Uh, grace is another dimension of God's love and typically refers to God's bestowal of undeserved favors to man. God makes his son to rise on the evil and good and he sends his rain on the just and, and the unjust and even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God bestowing undeserved favor. Uh, another dimension of love is long-suffering. Uh, long-suffering, or we often will refer to patience, uh, points to God's persistence to act in love over long periods of time. Some scoffers, Peter said will mock the idea of the Lord's return, because of how much time has elapsed since he promised he was coming and his actual coming and in and second Peter three nine, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Continuing to give even flagrantly disobedient individuals and, and entire cultures of rebels, opportunity to repent, that, that's long-suffering, and that is love. And then a fourth dimension of love is this attribute that, that we're considering today, referred to here as mercy, and, and I know this is really just a, a very simple observation, but part of our understanding of the term mercy is just to note that it is a dimension of love. Mercy is one way to express love. And when you move to trying to define uh, the the scriptural term mercy in one simple statement, you do have your work cut out for you. Uh, In some ways, it's it's easier if you split up the study by the Old and the New Testaments. Um, The Hebrew term that is translated mercy in the Old Testament... Has a strong emphasis upon loyalty to those that you are in uh, committed to in a relationship, and sometimes that, that same Hebrew word, uh, still capturing the idea of love, but, but the combination of it with loyalty, sometimes that Hebrew word is translated steadfast love, in some places, it, it is translated loving kindness. But other uh, expressions that surround it point to a loving kindness that is a constant in the relationship. When you move into uh, the New Testament, the New Testament usages of the the word mercy have more connection to concepts like compassion and and pity. Uh, When someone is merciful, they want to minimize and even relieve someone's um, misery. Most are familiar with the story that Luke tells of a rich man who died and went to hell. And in hell, Luke 16 says that he cried out for mercy and even for just one drop of water on his tongue. And then he added, because I am tormented in this flame. Mercy then would be acting to relieve misery, maybe even in some cases to prevent a a miserable circumstance from developing. Some of the New Testament usages have, have brought people to compare and contrast mercy with grace. And you probably heard this expression. But some have said that grace is giving me favors I don't deserve. And mercy is withholding punishment from me that I do deserve. And So, like I said earlier, there, there's a fair amount of breadth to this term. But with all of that variety and breadth to the term i'll come back and say that there is an observable common thread and the common thread that is found in this term is the idea of tenderness towards people in need the the mercy of god speaks of god's loving and tender care in the presence of man's weakness and even man's affliction. I mentioned about the New Testament term that some of the synonyms are compassion and pity or, or sympathy and, and ideas like that. The, the antonyms, the opposite, would actually range from just outright cruelty to just plain apathy. I don't care. It's none of my business. not my problem. I think that you are thankful, as I am, that the psalmist was able to write, Like as the Father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. He knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. Psalm 103. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 9, was described as seeing the multitudes and and moved with compassion because he saw them as, as faint and scattered abroad and sheep having no shepherd that's mercy that is that is tenderness in the presence of of weakness and affliction and and tenderness in the presence of the misery that often accompanies the affliction and when we look at mercy displayed by the lord we can also see an additional element when we're looking at love um, tenderness in the presence of, of weakness and affliction but when we look at it in, in the Lord, displayed in his life and ministry, there's an additional element. I want to go ahead and have us turn to Matthew chapter 20. And again, we, we've seen it as an expression of love, tenderness aroused, and contact with misery. But I want us to see more than this. And, and I've had you turn to chapter 20. In just a minute, we're going to look in verse 30. But let me uh, just tell you that that what we're looking at is the fourth of four occasions in the book of Matthew where the Lord uh, where someone asked the Lord for mercy. In Matthew chapter 9 there are two blind men that cry out to the Lord to have mercy on them. And in Matthew 15 a Canaanite woman with a demon-possessed daughter asked for mercy. And in chapter 17 a man with a lunatic son who was demon-possessed asks asked for mercy. And then the fourth occasion is here in chapter 20. And uh, just look at uh, verse number 30, and we'll read down through verse 34. Notice, uh, behold, two blind men sitting by, the way, uh, sitting by the wayside. When they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou Son of David. And the multitude rebuked them, because they should hold their peace. But they cried out the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou Son of David. And I, I'm just going to stop here, and, and I know that you all know the answer to this question. But when they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, did, did Jesus respond to any of these people crying out and say, Oh, I do have mercy. I, I feel your pain. Well, we know that that's not all that he did. Verse 32 says... And Jesus stood still and called them and said, What will ye that I shall do unto you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Now that's the additional quality to mercy and mercy additional part of our definition of what it means to be merciful it is to demonstrate love by tender emotion towards the needs of others that moves into action to do what can be done to relieve their distress and and again we've been exploring this virtue as an attribute of god but but with now some of this understanding I do want to return to the flow of the Sermon on the Mount. And again, back to the observations that we were making earlier. If if this virtue, if this attribute, if this quality of somebody's life is, as it were, kind of a vital sign of new life, if it's a mark of a new relationship with God, then we, we should be able to expect that connection To be made in other scriptural texts. And it is made. And I'm not going to have you turn now. but, But just listen. And if you're taking notes. Maybe go ahead and write these down. But 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. Says finally be all of one mind. Having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Now, just think of that, love as brethren. What, what are qualities that, that would mark a brother or sister in Christ? The qualities of love that would mark a brother or sister in Christ. Well, they're words like compassion and pitiful and courteous. Or think of 1 John 3 and verse 17. Whoso hath this world's good, and see his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? You, you see, you, you have the resources, and you see someone in need, and you have no compassion. How can you say that you have the love of God in you? James chapter 1 and verse 27 says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world you'll know when god is really at work in a life because there there is a quality of love that is fitting for a child of god that that's compassionate and pitiful and uh, and sees needs and and where they have the resources to whatever they can to meet that need on one occasion jesus had uh, a doctor of the law uh, a student, I'm going to call him a skeptical seminary student. Jesus had a young man that was trying to find fault with his teaching. And the young man said, So, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded by pointing to the law, Deuteronomy chapter 6, which calls men to love the Lord their God with their whole heart and love their neighbor as theirself. And, and, and Jesus, by saying so, was, again, ki- attempting to get this young man to see his need. He was religious. He knew a great deal of the scripture, but he was lacking true love. And, and the young man realized the implication of that and attempting to defend himself said, who is my neighbor? And, and the force of that is to say, oh, yeah, so what neighbor have I not loved? And Jesus responded by giving the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you remember that there's a man who comes into the presence of thieves. And, and he's beaten and he's wounded and he's really left for dead. And a priest passed by and did nothing to help. And, and then a Levite did the same. But a Samaritan, seeing this Jewish man in his need, The Samaritan stopped to help someone that, that typically on any other day would have despised that very Samaritan. And Luke's account says a certain Samaritan went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, set him on his own beast and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said, Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. And after relating that story, Jesus said to this young man, which of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And this man responded by saying the obvious, he that showed, it's interesting to use this term, he that showed mercy on him. The, The man who did something, who went to him, who bound up his wounds, who who cared for him and who invested his time and his even his money to try to relieve the the misery the one who showed mercy that's the one who was uh, who was a good neighbor and that's the one who expressed love and this tenderness that cares for people in need and and their misery and moves into action that to to relieve it that reflects the heart of the lord And I think you know that what Jesus is preaching about in this sermon was not just someone doing, you know, occasional acts of charity as if they did their duty. What Jesus is talking about is a heart that knows and demonstrates the Lord's love for miserable people. And brethren, we need to be reminded that miserable people are not just poor people. Every life that is racked by sin is miserable, even if it lives in a nice house and wears nice clothes. And brethren, what, what measure of the Lord's heart to rescue people from their misery in sin do we know in our own lives? How full are we of true compassion that moves into action to minister to the needs of those in misery and i think we do need to be clear that mercy isn't just giving somebody what they desire Um, giving somebody what would make them most comfortable for the moment if it's just merely indulging their whim could be in the end detrimental to their welfare Love must operate in in conjunction with the entirety of what we know of the person of God. But a merciful man will be involved with a tenderness that moves to uh, to relieve the affliction of those that are needy. As I reflected on this virtue as uh, a first evidence of a new life, I thought it really does fit with what I've observed about people over the years. There are those uh, who make professions of faith in Jesus, and, and they claim to know him, but they really aren't all that moved about the condition of lost sinners around them. In some cases, I've seen it even early on, that if somebody makes a profession of faith, but they, they just want to kind of keep that profession to themselves. They aren't gripped with concern for lost family members and and friends and, and their true miserable condition in their sin. They just don't even really see that as a compelling need. And over the years now, I've seen it enough to have significant doubt. When you see someone that has a lack of a burden for lost family members... and and lost friends and just wherever they are they continue to they continue to just kind of fit into the same circles of relationships they had before and 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 when I see that and there's no compulsion to witness I wonder whether we're going to see any other signs of new life and any indication of, of of a genuine saving faith but in other cases even when a new believer might have some natural fear of a reaction from others, and and maybe even some idea of potential negative consequences if if they open their mouth and told people what God had done in their life and and told be, other people what they need for the Lord to do for them, I I, I have seen them be such be be gripped uh, with truth to the point and 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 really even in this context that they have such mercy in their hearts towards others that they must proclaim Christ. Proclaiming Christ to miserable sinners is the greatest expression of mercy that there is. I was thinking back to uh, the words of one songwriter, all my life was full of sin when Jesus found me. All my heart was full of misery and woe. Jesus placed his strong and loving arms about me. And he led me in the way I had to go. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. Aren't you thankful that jesus did and does care for you he's the greatest example of of mercy and when his life is lived out in me there will be a yearning in my heart to reflect him to others and and proclaim to him to others proclaim his gospel to others and and when my life is is, is Touched again by his life when my life is walking in union with him when when god is working out more and more of a likeness of jesus christ in my life <clears throat> There will be a compulsion to to meet the needs of miserable people on multiple levels, but in particular To proclaim christ to meet the need of of sin and the misery uh, that sin brings and if i'm Reflecting on this truth this morning and I just have to Admit that there is a glaring lack Of this kind of mercy in my life. There's multiple Potential explanations for that but jesus did say About one woman in particular and and her demonstrating her thankfulness for the love of god and the mercy of god to her He did say that he that is forgiven much does what? He that has been forgiven much loves much. And in some cases, I I do fear at least that one of the reasons why some professing believers show so little care and concern for the needs of others is that Perhaps that person has never really come to grips with these first several Beatitudes and really has never come to grips with just how much of a sinner I am how poor before God I am and has grieved that That sin and responded meekly to that sin and just said God I'm a sinner and I have no hope and 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 you've got to deliver me if i'm ever going to be made right with you I can't make myself right with you and and they've just cried out to God to deliver them and And it may be that that is your need. It may be that the reason why you are so lacking in the display of mercy to others is because you've never received the mercy of God to you in Christ, and you need to be saved. But, dear friend, let us all be challenged again about just how significant it is in the mind of our Lord that we reflect His mercy to those that are in need because of their sin. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning?